the middle of a series in Acts, so I'm going to share with you a little bit of some reflections that I have on, you know, this whole issue of terror and then the issue of truth has been weighing heavily on my mind. And my question that I've been wrestling with is, what causes or what catalyzes somebody or a community or a culture to move from terror, fear, anxiety, uh, oppression and injustice to truth and love and compassion and joy? What is the thing that causes that shift to happen? Because it feels as if we could, if we could crack that code somehow, or at least gain some insight into that, we'll be on the way towards actually achieving rescue and God's reputation and reconciliation and love in this world. So, uh, you all know this song, yes? Um, and if I started singing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. This famous hymn, perhaps one of the most famous hymns in the world, was written by a guy by the name of John Newton. If you don't know his story, he was a fairly well-known and wealthy and successful transatlantic slave owner during the slave period. And he had some sort of shift and conversion in his life where he realized the sin and the error of his ways and wrote this song as an expression that during that period of time, he was a terror. He was injustice. He was all about those kinds of ways of living. And then that was the blindness. But now he sees the light of love, of, of equality, of humanity. And I got to thinking about this song, was blind, but now I see. So there's this sentiment with this theme of blindness, that blindness is the analogy, the metaphor, the symbol of what it means to not see things clearly. And then to be able to see things is now to come into enlightenment, into the truth. But that seems to be, there there seems to be another layer or another nuance to blindness and seeing that is found actually in our biblical narrative. And I think it falls along the lines, if we could shift that last line, I was blind, but now I see, to I was blind, so I could see. I was blind, so I could see. And I'm going to take you back to Acts chapter 9 with a guy by the name of Saul, who has this epiphany on the road. This light shines, this voice from heaven declares, why are you persecuting me? Well, let's just read it together, and, and you'll see what happens at the end of the story. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Get up, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor Drank. In this particular story, blindness was actually the transition point 
between not seeing clearly, persecuting Christians, murdering, killing them because he felt as if it was his religious duty. Then he had to transition through a period of blindness in order that he could see. I was blind so that I could see. Not blind, but now I see. And I started thinking about this theme a little bit more. This is actually a recurring theme throughout our Bible. Does anybody remember the guy by the name of Samson? Now, he's known as strength, right? He's this big, burly guy, of course. Whenever you draw pictures of him, you got to make sure he's ripped and he's got an eight-pack. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an eight-pack. Clearly, I've never known anything such as an eight-pack. But in this particular story... It's found within the context of the, a period that is very, very dark. And part of the story of Judges from which this Samson story emerges is the Israelites were doing evil. And here's the key phrase, in the sight of the Lord. In the eyes of the Lord, things were very, very evil. And this guy, Samson, who's supposed to be a judge, who's supposed to be dedicated to God, actually doesn't do the things that he's supposed to do. One, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw a Philistine woman. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw a Philistine woman at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife, which is so romantic. (laughs) But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among your own kin or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. Again, part of the reason why this is important is you're not supposed to mix with other cultures. But Samson said to his father, get her for me because she pleases me. That's actually not correct. Get her for me because she is right in my eyes. In other words, the Samson story is about how the people of Israel and Samson himself saw clearly the things that they thought were right. It was vision, it was seeing that caused them to be in the situation of disobedience against God. They saw clearly, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And if you know the end of the story of Samson, just to sum it up very quickly, at the very end of his life, When he finally comes to a sense of repentance, making things right, what happens to his eyes? He gets his eyes gouged out. He became blind so that he could see. And only after losing his sight, it's all about vision in this story, was there some sort of awakening and awareness to the way in which he was living and to the glory that was due to God through his life. And then I thought about another story in uh, the book of Mark through the Gospels of Jesus. Jesus does this miraculous healing of a man who was born blind. But there's something weird about the story. I mean, this is Jesus who Christians claim to be God on earth. And when he heals the man, he doesn't quite see fully and clearly. Which is like, what's up? Dude, you're Jesus. Don't you know that you can heal fully and completely? But part of what we forget is the context of the story. Right before this healing, quote-unquote healing that Jesus does, there's an interaction that Jesus has with his disciples. Now, the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They said to one another, It is because we have no bread. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Face palm. Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? 
And he said to them, seven. Then he said, do you not yet understand? Then they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him, begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. When he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, can you see anything? In other words, this healing story comes right in the context of the disciples seeing but not seeing. Having an ability to take it. He must be talking about bread. And then, of course, Jesus is like, you don't quite see. Let me show you what you are like. And then he does an illustration, a miraculous healing with a man that was born blind. And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. It's, I can see, but I don't really see. In other words, the disciples are somewhat unaware that they are blind. They are unaware that they are not seeing clearly. And part of what Jesus does in this healing is to awaken them to the fact that they can't see. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. All three of these stories uses blindness as a metaphor, a symbol, a picture for what transition needs to happen from disobedience, terror, don't get it, not understanding the truth, to enlightenment, to redemption, to holiness, to what God desires. And the pathway there is blindness. Now, absolutely, blindness is definitely a metaphor for not understanding God and the world rightly. It's definitely a metaphor. But in these stories, if we look a little bit deeper and how these stories are constructed, blindness is also a requirement for the awakening to see God and the world rightly. Blindness is not just a metaphor. It's a requirement to get to understanding the truth about God and the truth of this world. I'll give you just a couple examples. This could go on and on and on. And hopefully as we get to some examples, you might see this pattern happen in your particular life. Justice. Whenever I talk about mass incarceration in our book club, the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, Brian Stevenson, there's always this statement or the sentiment that comes along that, well, they're in jail. They must have done something wrong. In other words, this particular person, when they respond to an injustice that is happening, they are stating by this, I clearly see how the system works. They have not yet opened their eyes or opened their hearts to realizing there are things that I don't see. This person hasn't quite embraced the reality that they are blind. It is just very clear to them. I see so clearly. If you're in jail you did something wrong. End of story. I see it so clearly. Whenever you're having conversations with people regarding the Bible and particular passages, especially the difficult and challenging ones, have you ever had somebody say, well, it's very clear that this is what it means. In other words, this person is declaring to you that they see it and they see it so clearly. And then when it comes to science... And by the way, let me just put this caveat for those of you who've been around Spark. You know that science is absolutely a core commitment of ours. We have many, many scientists in our community. So I'm not saying anything about this, but there is a sentiment that can come along. Science has proven religion false. Dismissing 
any sense of transcendence or the mystical or the metaphysical or any of that. It is clearly proven. I see clearly. Now, in these examples, as well as others that could possibly be said, these are expressions of somebody who sees clearly, who understands, who to themselves, it is as clear as day. They have not yet entered in to that transition moment of, I actually don't see. I actually don't understand. There are things, nuances, intricacies, truths about this world that I am blind to. That transition has not happened to these people yet. And part of what it means to shift from terror, ignorance, a misunderstanding of God and this world is you must first accept your blindness. And then you can be on the path towards seeing in a whole new light. Let me share with you a couple ways in which I've seen this play out over the last couple years of my reading and my study. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari wrote a brilliant book, Sapiens. Not everybody's going to like it. It's very non-religious. Um, but in this particular book, it's an anthropological history of charting through what were some of the major revolutions that got us to this particular point. The agrarian revolution and the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution. Now we're in the information revolution, right? What are all these big pictures, just huge pictures? What are the big things that have gotten to us? In the portion of the scientific revolution, he makes this really provocative statement, which I absolutely love. The scientific revolution has not been a revolution of knowledge. It has, above all, been a revolution of ignorance. The great discovery that launched the scientific revolution was the discovery that humans do not know the answers to their most important questions. Do you hear what he's saying there? Humanity, for a period of time, knew and clearly understood, especially in a patriarchal or a monarchy or a particular way of doing governance. The king knows, the king sees, this is the way it is. But what launched us into the scientific revolution, the development of all of our understanding and the fields that many of us enjoy and participate, that make humanity better, that cause us to be even better, was not the discovery of knowledge. It was the discovery of ignorance. The way I would put it, it's the discovery. We were blind. There are things about this world that I do not see, do not know, do not understand. And I must first embrace my blindness so that I can see. Omer's talk, he, the conversations that we have have been always enriching. I hope the people that share this pulpit, you are blessed by it. And he shared this book, actually, the last time he talked. So I got the book and I started reading about it because the things that he was saying about my Christian upbringing, about Christians saying that the, you know, this is the last generation of Jesus followers, and if we don't save this generation of Jesus followers, then everybody's going to be secular and it's all going to look like Europe. You know, that's, that's essentially the, the sentiment that often comes. So I started going back over the book, and it was just been a, a fantastic uh, movement for me to be re-educated and to think through some things a little bit differently. And he writes in here one of the main shifts that I remember affecting me in my thinking, that many Christians usually use statistics to buttress their way of seeing. With the best intentions, he writes, Christians sometimes pick statistics for their usefulness rather than for accuracy. And the most useful statistics are often those that cast the church in a negative light. In other words, the way in which our understanding of our faith, our tradition, even evangelicalism, is going to come through this particular way. 
And we want to clearly understand, see, and ensure that we have clearly understood. So we use these statistics to support us. But yet here, in this, is an awareness that maybe, because you think you see so clearly, you may be blind to other shifts and movements within Christianity, even within evangelicalism, that are positive, that should be celebrated, that are wonderfully redemptive in this world. And I know in this community, we have a lot of angst and frustration with certain segments of the religious population. And some of that is justified. I'm just simply suggesting that if we think we see so clearly... Books like this, talks like Omer's, other conversations that we have and relationships that we have should remind us that maybe there are segments or understandings about our faith that we are blind to. And if we can accept that blindness, then maybe we can shift into thinking about things a little bit differently. Back in 2008, I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. And in his book, he started talking about, even back then, of course, this has been around a long time, a thing called implicit bias. And in his book, he actually has a test that he links to at Harvard's uh, University. They've put up this thing, and you can test yourself. Do you have an unconscious implicit bias? And let me tell you something. I'm going to be, <laughs> I'll just share with you. I remember reading this and going, what is that? But after reading it, accepting for just a brief moment there might be something about me I don't know about. There might be something within me that I am blind to. There might be something within me that's unconscious, subconscious, and something that actually repulses me, but I'm, none, I'm completely unaware of. In other words, this book helped me awaken to my own blindness. So guess what? I went online, and I took the test, and I'm ashamed to tell you, I did not fare very well, recognizing that within me are biases against particular races, ethnicities, even my own. And it was only through going through that period of blindness that I began to start to see the light. That led me then, of course, to reading and studying more, engaging more. And obviously, obviously, I have a long, long way to go. These uh, Monday night conversations have been so enriching, so redemptive, uh, recognizing even more, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm still blind to a lot of things. My point is simply this. Doing things like this, engaging with that, awakens yourself. <laughs> I'm actually blind. I don't see things as clearly as I think that I see them. Let me engage with my own blindness, accept it, run into it, and then we can begin to see. Fascinatingly enough, Harvard published their findings in a summative book called Blind Spot. What fundamentally is the ethic of recognizing your blind spot? I call this the bell curve of humility. Remember when you're a teenager, when you are just learning and growing, and maybe you're, you know, Phoebe's age or younger, you recognize that you may not know a lot. In those. She asks so many wonderful questions. What is this? Who is that? What is this for? Wonderful questions. And then you get to be 13. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, your awareness of how much you know grows. And then you start to realize, oh, I know quite a bit. I, my parents are such idiots. 
I can't believe they don't see it the way that I see it. Isn't that true? And what happens is this. As soon as our awareness of how much we know about this world begins to decline as we enter into high school and college, something psychological wells up within us and says, wait a, wait a second, I don't want to go on the decline. I don't, want to, I don't want to admit that I don't know things. I don't want to admit that I'm unaware. Look at, I'm at my peak. I just turned 17. And something happens and we forget that we are actually still blind. And if I could invert this, I would say that this is ultimately how we should be engaging with our blindness. We start with high levels of humility. High levels. We have to go through this season where we think we know everything and our level of humility gets really low. But followers of Jesus, people who are mature, people who recognize that this world is complicated and intricate, and once you start getting into relationships with other people, your level of humility should shoot right back up. There are things in this world that I am blind to, that I don't understand, that are subconscious to myself, and I must first embrace my blindness so that I can see. A side benefit of blindness, by the way, People who are blind don't have their ability to see visually. But what begins to happen is that their other senses begin to become more acute. Their sense of touch, their sense of taste, and their sense of hearing. It's amazing to study people who are blind, how they navigate this world through echolocation. And they're able to see their surroundings because... This sense of hearing that is not as attuned to those of us who can see visually, because we're not as attuned, it's hard for us to understand, but they have, through their just mere existence in this world and how they've had to understand, those senses begin to emerge. And this is what I would say. As we embrace our blindness, as we embrace our humility, as we embrace our understanding that there are things that are subconscious, unconscious to ourselves that we don't even know about. I can imagine as our humility begins to grow and as we begin to recognize that sense of blindness, as we accept it, then other senses within ourselves will also become more sharp. As you recognize your blindness to somebody's life in this world as a racial minority, as you recognize your blindness, as you engage with that person's story, your sense of compassion, your sense of empathy actually becomes more acute because you've embraced your blindness. I don't know that person's story. I don't know what they've gone through. I don't know what they felt. Let me embrace my blindness. Listen, care deeply about this other person. And as you do, I have seen in myself and in others that these other parts of ourselves become stronger and more acute. How does this happen? How do we engage our blindness? And then how do we begin to see into the future? How do we begin to see God and this world and each other in a proper light? I think there's a portion at the end of this story that gives us a little bit of a clue. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. 
At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many about this man, from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings, before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. What is one of the means and the ways in which this terrorist saw things more clearly after going through a season of blindness? He had a crucial conversation with somebody. He engaged in the life and in relationship with somebody completely different from him. And I'm going to suggest to you that part of the way in which we begin to see things clearly We have to first accept our blindness, and then we start seeing through the eyes of the people that are around us. Start engaging with other people, our friends, our community, our family members, and let them be our viewfinders. Let them be the people who help to inform and instruct how we see this world. Prior to blindness, we may not care because we see things so clearly. But once we accept our blindness so that we can see, We begin opening up our hearts and our minds to hearing their story, hearing their path, hearing their pain and their struggles, hearing their hope and their redemption, hearing how they engage. And as we do that over and over and over and over and over again, then we can begin to see more clearly. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Desmond Tutu has been a voice for me in this sense. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Prior to my engagement or understanding, my level of activism or my level of engagement is very, very low. It's like, how does it involve me? Then I accept my blindness. And then I begin to listen to this voice. If you are neutral in situations of injustice... You have chosen the side of the oppressor. And now I see things very, very differently than I did before. I listen to the voice of my board member and friend, Stacy, who writes this on her Facebook page, I did get permission. And I chose this not because other people didn't say wonderful things, but in this post, she exemplifies this embrace of the blindness so that we can see. It's okay to admit that you don't know how to do this. There it is, right there. Embrace the blindness. We're all learning. This is messy and uncomfortable. I can share some of the resources that have helped me on my journey of owning my own racial identity and coming to terms with the ugliness upon which this country has been and continues to be built. I'm grateful for the patient and kind friends, students, colleagues, and professors who have invested in me and continue to teach me and be patient with me. Read voraciously with an open mind and humble heart. And please share recommended books and articles as well. In that statement, Stacey is recognizing there are things that I do not know about. 
share them with me. An embrace of the blindness. I am unaware, and I need a community of people to teach me, to grow me. Lament, repent, weep, pray. You can't learn about our nation's history without doing so. Talk about race with your community. Listen, really listen, with the humility to trust that others have experienced this very same world in a completely different way. See, truly see those around you. Ask questions. Constantly check your biases and assumptions. Pay attention to the systems that reward and welcome some and punish and exclude others. Identify where you are complicit in that and what is in your power to change. Renew your commitment to what you're already doing in your community to make it more equitable and loving, especially for the least of these. In that post, she exemplifies this ethic. Read, listen, be humble, the way that I would put it in the context of this message, embrace your blindness so that you can see. And then if I can offer my own voice, this is one of the posts that I did recently. It is common for Christians in my circles to respond to our church's justice and racial reconciliation efforts as too political. It's a comment that we get very often. It's difficult at times to discern whether they are disagreeing with the way we voice our convictions or simply dismissing the issue altogether as unimportant or irrelevant to their faith. Honestly, I don't know what is too political or not. Here's what I do know. Justice is the gospel. The good news is that injustices are being made right. And then if we can close on the words of Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. So my friends, how do we move from terror, from ignorance, to truth, understanding and hope and redemption and love and reconciliation and rescue? We have to embrace our blindness. And for those who continually see things so clearly, this is so clear how this world works and therefore I must act in accordance with how clear I see it we must pause and embrace a little bit of humility and recognizing that we may not see things as they truly are then we must through that blindness let others in our community others in our nation others who are not like us be our viewfinders through which we perceive and understand the world And then through all of that, join in seeing God's view of this world and each other. Because it is going to be really, really hard for us sometimes to lift our eyes to the hills when we see that the valleys are so dark. But God is doing something wonderful in this world. In the midst of all this, Spark has been engaged in some phenomenally redemptive conversations. We have been uh, having some reconciliation moments, some uncomfortable moments that have moved and shifted people. And I want to see that. I want to look upon that. I want to see the white people and the black people and the brown people and the Asian people, all of us, the Latin American and Hispanic people in our community, engage. And I want to look at that. I don't want to look at the hate. I want to look at that and say, God's doing something here in the midst of all of that. In other words, we have to become blind so that we... And see.